We're going to move into our second presentation then. We've had first-time presenters of a first-time research paper done by these two gentlemen. Now we're going to have a blast from the past. Mr. David Gluckman coming back to give us an update about a paper that he presented here five years ago, speaking about the impact of costs on, um, on umbrella funds within the country and to show what's he actually seen coming through in the experience in the last five years. So welcome to David. Okay, well, thank you, everybody. It's a pleasure to be here. Good morning. And it would be remiss of me when you give that introduction not to thank my co-author from five years ago, Megan, who's in the audience today for all your work. Um, the reason I believe this is an important subject to research is probably obvious to everyone in this room. There are many people, I'm sure all of us know, South Africans who are retired, who are struggling financially. And the question we have as an industry is how really can we improve retirement outcomes to the average South African? That's what the entire retirement reform debate uh, is about. Uh, now, I actually like this quote from our current and also then finance minister, when introducing retirement reform papers uh, in 2012, we're talking about structurally changing the shape of the retirement fund industry, and it's a paradigm shift. Remember those, those words. Now, I started this journey, yes, it is a bit of a blast from the past, but I wrote a paper on this particular issue uh, in 2009. How can we get better retirement outcomes to South Africans? And I put forward in that paper six uh, key uh, action points. I'm going to just talk about the two highlighted in red here today. It doesn't mean the others are any less important uh, whatsoever. And in fact, on that theme, just because I am talking to charges, I don't want the impression created that this is the most important issue facing the retirement fund industry. In fact, there was very good research done by Alexander Forbes in 2014 when they ranked the, the, the factors that most affect uh, retirement outcomes and costs or charges came in at number five. So certainly there are many other issues uh, if we want to get better outcomes. But what this paper, or this, the paper in 2011, my presentation today, and e everything we're trying to do is how do we actually reform the retirement industry? And I see the umbrella fund as the vehicle that we can reform the retirement industry by. We can take practical measures as an industry every single day, and even if the regulators take 20 years to come up with new legislation or a paper, it doesn't stop us doing that reform. So there are many factors that, you know, if you work in the commercial umbrella fund environment, you've got to tackle every single day to try work towards the better retirement outcome. Because remember, the end goal is a better retirement outcome. It's not to lower charges. And I highlight some of them over, over here. What that implies, although I'm going to be presenting on charges today, you know, if, if you're looking at this model, you're trying to get better retirement outcomes, there are probably 100 measures you've got to be measuring. I'll list some over there. Charges are just, just one of them. So, you know, on that theme, what, what I was very glad is that message does seem to be getting through a little bit. And I mean, yeah, we've got one of the leading financial journalists in the country talking about there's much more to, you know, which is the right umbrella fund, should you be an umbrella fund at all, then just the charges debate. But it doesn't mean the charges are not important. And, and that was the idea for the 2011 research. Essentially, you know, Rusconi had done research in 2004, 2005 on the issue of retirement fund charges. He didn't analyze commercial umbrella funds at all. And we felt, you know, we had a, quite a significant body of data. Maybe we could start and get a baseline analysis of what are the charges in, in this particular segment. And the aim, remember, is to improve retirement outcomes. So this is to reform the retirement reform debates. 
that is my aim. I'm not really talking about one specific umbrella fund provider. Now, in that 2011 uh, paper, we did reference there was one other study done, by, commissioned by CISA in 2009, done by an independent research group called uh, Compass, where they analyzed more costs in the commercial umbrella fund in industry, and they looked at eight of the major providers specifically. If you look at this data, I mean, there were at that stage in the entire industry 786,000 members, and if we look over here, we'll see the average number of members per participating employer was measured at 51 at that stage. And the reason we thought our 2000, or Megan and I thought our 2011 research was relevant to the, the wider reform debate is the, 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 the database we looked at was a very consistent profile uh, with what those industry averages seemed to be uh, implying. Now, in the 2011 paper, I'm not, uh, let's say, naive enough to believe everyone over here has read the paper, so we just summarized what we tried to do. What we tried to do is calculate a, retirement, a reduction in yield and charge ratio, very much along the lines of Rosconi as well before, for every member in the entire uh, sample. We did it on certain assumptions. I mean, you've got to choose assumptions. These are the assumptions. I'm not going to go into the detail why we chose those assumptions. I don't even think they're necessarily the best assumptions. But the important thing is when you measure charges over time is to use consistent methodology and consistent uh, assumptions. The, the actual assumptions are, are less re relevant. In terms of what we included in the analysis, uh, it was all the main factors uh, listed there that, that uh, affect retirement charges. But we did exclude certain charges as well. The first is any guarantees, which we took more as an insurance uh, premium than, than a, a, a charge for service. Um, the second is investment performance fees. Investment performance fees are certainly incorrect to exclude. They, they definitely should be uh, included. Having said that, they're very difficult to include. Um, but we were satisfied in 2011, and I'm satisfied today for the sample we're looking at. This is not a material factor whatsoever. And then the other issue is transaction costs, where, again, not so easy to measure on a consistent basis between different investment managers right now. Now, to summarize the 2011 um, findings, uh, as you see over here, what we, what we showed at that time, and we, I'll show you the sample data, but we had about 36,000 members, and we showed that the average member paid, had faced a reduction in yield over their savings term of 1.9% uh, per annum. But what, what the research also showed is there's a clear side effect, which Rosconi actually had identified in his previous research, and as one would intuitively expect, is that smaller employers face higher charges on this method than larger employers. That, that's not surprising because there's a fixed cost element uh, to running, administering, advising or, or, on any fund. What I must say is we were you know, quite pleased that that the financial press did take note of the study, and I think that's important because the financial press have a key role to play uh, in, in terms of getting better retirement outcomes because what we are talking about is a model where we're trying to improve competition, we're trying to improve understanding by customers, and that competitive power will ultimately be a key factor in improving retirement outcomes and, and reducing charges. Now, the... The 2011 findings and the 1.9% was actually used by National Treasury when they quoted on umbrella fund fees in the, the 2013 paper on South African retirement fund charges uh, compared to sort of very, a few other 
highlighted in red South African savings channels. Now, I must say, I don't think this, this table is entirely correct. It's probably comparing apples with pears uh, in many instances. But uh, I think it does give an important message, which I think is valid. Is, and the, or the question raised is, can we find a way to structurally change the retirement fund industry to actually get the South African retirement fund charges somewhere lower down uh, on, that, on that table? So to talk to National Treasury, who obviously are responsible for retirement reform policy making in the South African environment, I mean, they've been looking at this commercial umbrella fund environment. I mean, they have been questioning, have the biggest players already reached sufficient economies of scale that we should be seeing uh, cost savings coming through to, to, to the members? And they do make the acknowledgement in the 2012 overview paper that umbrella fund charges may well fall as the sector, sector matures. And, you know, all that background is why I felt it's important to actually bring this to this, this convention, just to get a snapshot, where are we in 2016 compared to 2011? Because, I mean, if we, if we believe that this is going to get a better retirement outcome for members and lower charges, we actually, in a sense, have a duty to measure how we're doing over time. And that's, that's what we are trying to do over here. I must say, what I'm trying to do, what my end goal really is are there any insights that can inform the retirement reform debate? And that, 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 that's what I'm hoping I can get to, and we can have some discussion on that uh, at the end. Now, I made the statement in that abstract that the market has grown a lot over the last five years, and let me show you this in numbers. So in our 2011 paper, we looked at nine of the major sponsoring companies of commercial umbrella funds of 26 different funds, and we took the FSB uh, data based on audited financial statements, and at that stage, the industry, as represented by the sample, sat at 70 billion of assets and almost 1.1 million members. If I take the identical 26 uh, funds uh, this year, I think I did it around August this year, that, that 70 has grown to over 250 billion, and the 1.1 million, 1 .1 million has grown to over 1.5 million members. That translates to growth in the asset base of over 30, or close to 30% per year. And, you know, as Credit Suisse uh, say in that statement, this makes the, the commercial umbrella fund market the biggest growing market in the South African defined contribution space at present. And I'll show uh, the track over there based on those audited financial statements. Obviously, any data from the FSB, it depends on the latest financial statements uh, of each fund that's submitted to the FSB. So at any one point, it'll be about a year out of date. So I would say there's pretty much no doubt that this uh, industry is sitting at above 300 billion uh, right now. Going back to the Compass study in 2009, they made the statement, or they questioned, you know, when will we get sufficient uh, economies of scale, specifically as far as administration is concerned, to start bringing through cost savings to members. And they said that the 786,000 members in that sample, which was representative of a much bigger number, a greater number of funds, I must say, needed to grow to about 1.6 million before we'd, we'd start getting those savings. What, what this shows on a consistent basis to my previous graph on assets is that the membership of the main commercial umbrella fund is sitting at over that 1.6 million now. And again, just repeat, that will definitely be about a year out of date. So to summarize uh, the, 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 what we analyzed, uh, in 2011, we looked at about 
uh, 36,000 members from over 800 participating employers in the Sun Lum Umbrella Fund. I mean, if you just look at the averages, it means that the average participating employer had about 46 uh, employees. This year, it's a much bigger sample. It's, we basically sampled on the same basis. There were certain rules that we put in our paper as who gets included in the analysis and who doesn't get included. We followed those same rules, and the, the 36,000 has gone up to 94,000. We're talking almost 1,400 participating employers, and the profile has increased slightly to, or even materially, to, to 68 members per participating employer. I must say, in my opinion, or to my knowledge, this is the biggest and most complete umbrella fund charges data set ever, ever looked at in South Africa. And in my mind, the nice thing about it is we're looking at all 94,000 members. We're calculating a reduction in yield on specified assumptions for every one of those members. We're not just taking a sample, you know, one or two quotes from different providers and seeing who's the most expensive and who's the cheapest. Maybe okay, at this point, I'm not sure if he's in the audience, but uh, just to acknowledge and thank Ryan Campbell-Harris. Oh, there he is, who actually did the modeling this year. Fantastic job that, that you did. Thank you very much. Um, now, you may ask, okay, before, if you want to get any industry insights, how does that compare to the rest of the industry? Is our sample representative of the industry? So what I've got here, this is data on the biggest four sponsoring companies of, of commercial umbrella funds, and it's data that those funds themselves submitted to National Treasury so recently, so it should be reliable. And if you translate that to, to averages, I mean, what it basically says, and then I calculate an average for this combined sample, is that, you know, for, for, for these big four companies, the average member sat with 186,000 uh, rand in their fund, the average employer about 12 million uh, in, in their fund, and the average number of members about 65 per participant employer. So if I compare that to the sample I've analyzed here, I mean, I would say those numbers are very close. I mean, so I, I think it's fair to say we've got a sample over here that's pretty um, in line with the industry. Averages, obviously, averages are, are a dangerous thing, but I, I do think, that, you know, given that the four players there plus, plus the Sunlum Umbrella Fund where this sample comes comprise about 90% of the market, I think one can maybe take some uh, information from, from any cost analysis and, and use it to inform the reform debates. So without further ado, I'm going to start going into what we find as our results. And some interesting findings. I didn't 100% expect all these findings, but the first one, and look, the numbers themselves really mean nothing in the sense that if you use different assumptions, you're going to get different numbers. But on a consistent basis, the, the mean reduction in yield fell quite materially from 1.9% to 1.66, although interestingly, what we didn't see is any such fall in, in the median. Maybe to show that graphically, and, and I, maybe I wasn't even totally aware of this before commencing the 2011 recession, didn't, it hadn't hit home quite, quite so much, is that every member in any retirement fund or any defined contribution fund, because of a whole wide variety of factors, actually their reduction in yield per member is materially different. And, you, you know, we get a shape like this, which is very similar to the shape we saw in 2011, and in a sense also reflects salary distributions in South Africa and wealth distributions as well, probably. Uh, but, you know, most members get in a reduction in yield somewhere there, showing you the median. Uh, um, some of these are coming in the wrong format over there. They're not on my, on my computer. Um, that's about 1.3%, that's 1.5%, that's 1%, 1%. So, so that formatting has changed. 
and then you get a long tail. You get a long tail. They're not paying 4,700% per annum reduction yields, but 4.7% in this case. Um, so one gets a long tail, and those will be low earners with RAND-based costs, etc. There could be a variety of, of, of reasons. Maybe I should say, besides playing with the assumptions, one has to be very careful if you use any charge measure or quote any charge measure, because you can measure it in so many different ways. Uh, I mean, even the sample that we've got here, although I've said that the average is 1.66%, but what, you, what we've got to appreciate, the way we've done that, is we took all 94,000 members, we calculated a reduction yield for each of those members, and we did a simple averaging of those, of those people. I mean, you could do it, and maybe more natural to, to weight it in some way, but by assets, for example, would be a more uh, common way to do it. And the other way to look at it is um, over, you know, members who, for example, join at age 25, their first job, and then they retire at 65, what would the charges that they've incurred been? And, and those will go down. Maybe that's actually the figure that Treasury probably should have put into the graph I showed you earlier all along. What we also did, uh, similar to what we did in 2011, we analyzed the results by different age uh, salary bands. So looking at people who have a pensionable salary less than 3,000 a month, 3,000 to 10,000, 10,000 to 20,000, and above 20,000. What we've seen over here, I mean, the, the, I, did, I did actually inflation-proof the salaries just to make sure people didn't move bands just because of, uh, of, of, of inflation. Um, so you, you get similar percentage numbers in each band. But what we've seen is a fall in the charges across all bands. But interestingly enough, most of the gain is actually seems to be going to the low earners or, or lower earners, which possibly is a socially desirable thing. I don't think that's actually necessarily the case with every, every umbrella fund. I think it just reflects how this fund has chosen to, to kind of distribute gains between its members. And it could have been done uh, in a different, a different way. Another analysis similar to what we did in, in 2011 is by employer size. Now again, yeah, we see the averages. I've also shown the split between the different components, although one must be very careful in a commercial umbrella fund to worry about the individual components too much, particularly when it's the same entity could be providing both or all components because it's not so difficult to, to shift charges between one element and another, but at the end of the day, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't make a difference to the overall. The overall will sit at 1.66. So again, similar to 2011, we see the clear size effect, but interestingly enough, we didn't see that size effect at the biggest band, uh, those employers with more than 500 members. Um, and, okay, yeah, I'll just show graphically if you compare the two. So you see gains for every every part of it, except for employers with more than 500 members, we actually didn't see gains in this particular case. The question would be, why, why has that happened? And I actually haven't done a proper analysis of surplus in a sense, but uh, I, you know, I intuitively know what are the reasons, and um, this is my, what I surmise are the reasons, and I'll highlight some of them. The first is, we've seen a very big move away from portfolios with guarantees. And remember, we're not measuring including guarantee premiums. And often when one moves from, a, from an investment portfolio uh, with guarantees to one without guarantees, you may increase the investment management fee, but the guarantee premium falls away. So that, that, that would certainly be a factor. I must say, 
you don't see on the previous graph that the investment fees are going down. And I think, you know, my, I think that means, although we, we've seen significant interest, significant debate, discussion, financial coverage, we are not seeing that picking up in customer demand to a significant extent. We've definitely seen some pickup in passive, but not, not to the extent I may have expected. Uh, okay, I've highlighted at the smaller end, very big gains. I mean, that, that's quite positive. And I think for the larger end, maybe just uh, two factors that I think I want to highlight why I think we're seeing that increase. The first is, don't be confused. Just because uh, we're talking over 500 members, many of those could be, or some of those could be very large employers with uh, effectively a blue-collar uh, uh, workforce. And the way we're doing the simple averaging, that's going to materially impact uh, the, the charge measures. The second is, and I would be surprised if other providers are not seeing something similar, we're definitely seeing, you know, when funds go the umbrella fund route for the first time, we're definitely seeing standalone funds saying, can we accommodate what they had before? Uh, uh, we want some sort of exception. In a sense, from a cost point of view, they're not getting the full gains of the, the umbrella fund. I'll, I'll be very surprised if that's not an industry-wide trend, and I see one or two people in the audience nodding. Um, another um, point, or maybe worth noting, is, and maybe it's, it's pretty obvious, but you know, the higher your contribution rates, effectively the lower your charges will be on a reduction in yield basis. So what we, what we did over here is we, we broke down the 94,000 members into those who contribute a net of risk costs less than 5% of, of salary towards retirement savings, 5 to 10, 10 to 15, and over 15. And what we see is obviously, maybe not surprising, very high charges for those who are not contributing sufficiently, which actually is a benefit design puzzle. I mean, in a sense, those clients need to ask, have they got the, the, the right vehicle in place, uh, or can they over time increase contributions? Often these things start as, uh, we'll start at a low contribution, increase over time. So it's not necessarily a problem, just something to, to point out. I must say, the, the positive news is looking at the entire sample, we see that the average has increased from 12.6% to 12.9% going towards retirement savings. And I think that's an area the industry should, could concentrate on. You know, rather than getting costs down 0.1 or 0.2%, if we can get that 12.9% up to 13.9 or 14.9 over the next five years, it's going to have a much greater impact on retirement outcomes, I, I, I think. And I think that those type of gains are actually achievable. So, those are the highlights of, of the analysis and the results, but where does this leave us as the retirement reform debate? So, to start with the first question, I mean, has consolidation resulted in cost savings to retirement fund members? Well, okay, I think I've showed you, I think beyond all doubt, that consolidation has happened and is happening and is probably going to continue to happen. On the issue, are there cost savings? Yes, we've shown that the, the mean reduction in yields are, have decreased. Um, but having said that, I think it's too early to draw any, any conclusions. I, I would just say my conclusion is some small encouraging signs, but still work to be done. Having said that, maybe I must uh, highlight the difference between charges and costs. So I've talked about charges. So all we do is we actually look what is, are the members actually being charged. But there's another way to do this puzzle. One could look at what is the cost of the provider uh, to run their business, to provide the infrastructure to have this fund. So Sunlum in this case, but it'll be a different sponsor for other umbrella funds. Now, Risconi makes the obvious point, I think, that over time there has to be a relationship with those two. 
you know, otherwise companies are going to go out of business uh, or comp competition is going to drive charges and costs to, to uh, some sort of reasonable correlation over time plus allowing for, for a profit margin. Now, what I'll do maybe just verbally just, just to illustrate w w how much of a saving I think can be achieved by this model, I asked the head of our retirement uh, fund administration business a couple of days ago, just tell me, how many people did we employ on a core part of our retirement administration business for, for the Sunlam Umbrella Fund in 2012, compared to how many people we, comp we employed today? Uh, so this is not the entire administration business, but a, a, a core chunk of it. And the number of employees or administrators working had gone down from 56 to 16, and the number of participating employees had doubled over that time. So to me, this says there are huge benefits to be had by, by stand, standardization over time. So uh, I, I think it's a very, very positive uh, for the future. Having said that, obviously the other side of the coin, and in a sense I, I actually predicted this in 2009, because one cannot have the one without the other. I mean, if we want to bring down charges in industry overall, at the end of the day, unless we increase the asset base materially, it will mean lower levels of employment in, in the retirement fund industry. Um, a lot of what I've argued is the benefits of we can get cost savings through competition. And what, what, what I believe the industry, it's maybe subjective, maybe subject to debate, but I believe the effective competition, which, which I identified in my 2009 paper as a problem in the industry, I, I definitely think it, it has improved over that period and is improving. And we've seen you know, new entrants entering the market. Sorry, I must just go back. Um, who either have entered or have announced plans that they will enter in the future, who have got real prospects to, to help improve the competitive out, outlook. And I think that is a good thing. That, that's going to benefit retirement outcomes. The other factor that we know is ahead, it's not here yet, but uh, we will know that a CISA uh, last month introduced effective annual costs for all retail retirement savings. Now, that doesn't cover pension and provident funds and commercial umbrella funds uh, at this stage, but we know a similar standard is being worked on and will come at some stage. And when that comes, that is going to drive the behaviour that people are going to look at the overall cost measure, um, which will not be the same as this because the standard will be different, but uh, I think it will be positive for, for competition as well. Having said that, I mean, we... we you know, what we've got is we've got a market over here that's gone ahead of the legislation. We still sit with legislation, the Pension Fund Act of 1956, with a few amendments that makes no mention of commercial umbrella funds, even though they sit in with more than 1.6 million members uh, in that environment, and even though more than 300 billion of assets under ma management. We know uh, there are uh, calls for uh, social security reform, or possibly even some sort of central social security fund, and so... You know, while I am reasonably optimistic about what we've seen uh, in terms of the market behaviours and the results we're showing you today, we can't be so complacent, and this is a letter that Robert Scone wrote to the Institute of Retirement Funds only last month, summarising where, where, where social development are as far as the retirement reform debate is. There is a real prospect for sponsoring companies over here that you can make an investment for a few years and then find out that the rug is uh, pulled from out under you. The other question is, where are the FSB as far as legislation is concerned? Um, 
Now, I, I, must say, I think I had a meeting maybe nine years ago with the Financial Service Board where they were talking about possible regulation, uh, legislation specific to umbrella funds. I know there's been subsequent debate, but we haven't seen anything uh, emanate from that just yet. The big question in my mind is, are they going to go to the, to, and just go to the left over here, uh, um, going to more independent conventional governance? I would argue, actually, we need, in the words of the minister earlier on, a complete paradigm shift. This is a completely new retirement fund vehicle, and we have to think completely differently about the regulate, regulatory environment. So I would argue strongly that any legislation should go to the right, I'm not convinced that will be the, the end outcome. So to finish, because I can see Stephen is very dead keen to get in there and kick me off. Um, you know, what can you do better at an actual convention than, than finish by quoting Einstein? So I, I said right now, uh, I, I don't think we can absolutely conclusively say that charges in this industry have come, come down, uh, although there definitely are some, some encouraging signs. What I'd say is retirement reform is, is, is a journey. When we're talking about 40 years of savings for, for, for South Africans, there are many other priorities as well. Um, I've tried to tackle this in three different conventions, in different ways, the same theme. So this is my five-day update. It's only a presentation. Hopefully it in some way can inform uh, the uh, reform debates. But actually my aim and or my thoughts, and I know it's a long way away, but I would like to close the whole discussion with a paper in 2021 to the convention. Now, that's a long way away, so it may never, never happen. But my intuition is that that is going to show beyond all doubt that if, if we continue on this road and maybe get the right regulation, we are going to bring through significant savings and better retirement outcomes for South Africans with this model. And we will have succeeded in structurally reforming the, the retirement savings industry in South Africa for the benefit of the average South African. And that's all I want to say. Thank you very much and look forward to the debate. Okay, so thank you very much, David. We've had the blast from the past. We've spoken about back to the future, looking forward to five years' time where hopefully we're going to be seeing some significant development, some significant improvement in our industry that we can talk about looking back over the, the five-year period that would have just passed. We've got about 14 minutes left, I think. Um, so questions, please. I know we're all hungry, but there must be some questions. Thanks, David. Um, just a question on NEST and any applicability of NEST in, in South Africa. I mean, uh, people don't tend to talk about NEST, or certainly commercial umbrella fund providers don't tend to talk yes. about NEST a whole lot. Okay. Um, and I, I do want to say, to, I do agree with the statement that there is a massive danger with, with, the, with the umbrella funds, I guess, that regulation does... Um, you know, result in a, in, 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 in a large investment that's not potentially recouped. I mean, the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority in the UK, just last week, Friday, released um, a 200-page report on, on effectively conflicts, conflicts in the investment consulting industry, which they will now be re investigating further, conflicts in the asset management industry, um, active versus passive IFAs, and I guess the umbrella fund industry also suffers from its conflicts, and so... 
Can just talk to us a bit about conflicts as well as then NEST and the potential for a, a, a government scheme and yeah. maybe put yeah. the politics to one side. Yeah. Okay, look, I, I'm, I'm, I'm definitely not an expert on the United Kingdom and, and NEST, but uh, I mean, yeah, the idea of some sort of central fund administered by a provider uh, using certain services, maybe investment management from the private sector, but 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 you know especially for smaller employers because there they've got um, auto enrolment for, for smaller employers to make things more cost effective. It's a possibility, uh, you know. And ultimately, I would see it if that comes about, that would just be one more competitor for the commercial umbrella fund industry in South Africa. I don't really have a problem with another competitor. Um, having said that, I think there would be questions where the government, you know, would get that right given all the other uh, pressures. I mean, we've talked about what Rob Rosconi's comment is on, on social security. So I, I'm not waiting for that to happen. If it does happen, I don't think we would, I don't know. Uh, there's, there's no great fear. I think a, a danger would be would enough South Africans choose to join that would also be a, a question. But having another, to me, it's just another competitor. Whether it would succeed, I think there'd be a very good question, big question on, on it today. The commercial umbrella fund market is, is very competitive, and most providers do not succeed who enter this market. I mean, there are hundreds of registered umbrella funds in South Africa. So I think we'd, we'd, we'd have to see that one. On the issue of conflict of interest, um, yes, there, there are conflicts that this, this model uh, involves, but ultimately, I mean, one has to choose between uh, a model where every, every decision is made independently by different uh, providers, decision makers, etc. And in some ways, and we've had that historically in South Africa, we had 13,000 registered standalone funds without those conflict of interest, theoretically. Um, and it hasn't delivered very good retirement outcomes. So I think what this is, this is about is saying, you know, if someone's looking at the entire package, can they somehow work that entire package together to get it to work more efficiently? And at the end of the day, there will be better retirement outcomes. And, you know, I'm not saying for one moment that there shouldn't be those independent, large, standalone, employer-sponsored retirement funds who want to follow the independent model, but then they've got to put in place all that is required to do that properly. And I think many of them fail uh, in that regard. So, yeah, in summary, there is conflict in the model. But maybe that is what is required for um, optimizing retirement outcomes. And I think the biggest safeguard, and that's why I argue to go to the right in, that, in, 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 in the slides before on where should the FSB go in legislation, I think the biggest safeguards are educating consumers, transparency, and competition. And that's why I think those are the ones that the regulation should concentrate on. Thanks, David. Um, maybe to link the, the, these two papers, um, default annuities have already started making an appearance, even though we don't have the default legislation yet. And they do have the potential to drive down costs as well, obviously, quite significantly. And obviously that is an extension of the benefit that umbrella funds can provide because they are the ones that are at the forefront of 
leaping into the default annuity space. Maybe just your thoughts around that and potentially that 10-year paper being not only pre-retirement but post-retirement as well. Yeah, yeah, I'll get you to cover <laughs> that. But, but uh, no, look, absolutely. I mean, this, this model is about trusting institutions. At the end of the day, can you trust institutions to, to get retirement outcomes you know, better, better for South Africans? And there's no reason to stop that at the, at the pre-retirement uh, phase. So I absolutely expect uh, the, the, the bigger funds to, to, to go in that direction and make it, if not cradle to grave, at least from start in employment to grave solutions. And yeah, they, they can make an impact. Although, I mean, we had the discussion in the pre previous paper, the, 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 the challenges of bringing an individual advice model into that are, should not be underestimated. I think I'm fighting with lunch at this stage. Yes, yes. David's in keen competition at the moment with um, lunch that everyone's waiting for. So, last chance to ask a question. I'm sure that during the lunchtime break, there's also opportunities for everyone to engage with um, David and with the previous speakers about any questions that might come to mind after having filled our tummies. But if there's no final, ooh, there's one. Arthur else. Arthur's not hungry. Thanks, David. The, the big sources of profit, as I see it, are not the charges. You mentioned the staff went down from 60 to 16 or so. Assets have gone up from 63 million to 200 million. I think those are minor. The big sources are really the asset fees, which you conveniently left out. Oh, those, those should really come down. I think those make a massive difference and are one of the main reasons why the big funds don't consider Umbrella yeah. funds really being in the member's interest. Yeah. Um, look, that's a, that's a good question or comment that you make there, Arthur. Look, what I would say, look, certainly that is where um, most providers make profits on is through, through investments. And there's no doubt that there's charge shifting happening significantly, not only in the... Um, umbrella fund space, but even the standalone fund space to, to, to maybe, maybe that's a bit more dangerous, but it, it does happen uh, as well. So what, what I prefer to think is that is why, unless there's separate entities doing all the, all the different elements, I prefer to look at the total charge measure. I think that at the end of the day, you can disguise one thing as something else. Legislation, regulation will never get that, in my opinion. So the important thing, and I think I try to put it in that slide, and that's why I'm so positive about the, what the work that ASISA are doing, if we can get a standard, is to focus on the total charge. Because if the total charge comes down and the total retirement outcome goes up, you know, who's to care? But, but yeah, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is what's going to happen as a result is that the, the entities that sponsor commercial umbrella funds, if, if it grows, will, will capture a bigger slice of the, of the profit pie. That, in my opinion, will not be at the, at the cost of the average South African. It's going to be at, at the cost of you know, other players in the industry who, who perhaps choose not to enter that, that market. So that's just a market competitive thing. At the end of the day, if they're charges, they have to be, be, be somewhere. Um, Right now, in a sense, because everyone else in the industry cross-subsidizes, every other player is forced to cross-subsidize uh, because we know 
uh, what charges are more appealing to customers. And it's, 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 not, it's not a, what's it, uh, an e you know, equal in environment out there. But uh, uh, that goes with the territory. I mean, we're trying to figure out how do we improve the lives of every South Africans. And if you've got to do that by a little bit of conflict, I don't see a big issue in that. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, yes. Well, look, I mean, right now, I really don't want to make this a um, one provider type of discussion. But right now, I mean, you can see over there, I can't remember what the exact figure, I think the investment management fees on average are 73 basis points. We know that for this particular fund, every single client in there can go choose a passive option at 35 basis points. So effectively they could reduce the charges by 36 basis points if all customers wanted to do that tomorrow. Uh, but that's a whole separate debate. I mean, we definitely haven't seen that customer demand coming through. Uh, if anything, you know, my impression is customers are, are very attracted to investment performance. So that continues to be a, a challenge for, for those who believe in fast investment performance is not a good uh, indicator of what the future will hold. Okay. I really am getting in the way of lunch, I'm conscious, but John no, wants to say We are a couple of minutes early, so I'm going to say thanks very much again to David. Thanks very much for um, yourselves, for the questions especially, and do enjoy your lunch. I believe our lunch ends 1.25pm and we'll be back at our various meetings at that stage. Thanks very much.